1: That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com.
0: This is an apostrophe podcast production.
2: We regret to inform you. The Rejection Podcast. It's funny about the sewer. Because I did come from the bottom. I did feel like nothing. Before I felt like anything. Cindy (laughs) Lauper. Looking back. A single sound punctuated Cynthia and Stephanie Lopper's childhood, the harmonica. If there was ever a lull in the conversation, somebody would shout, Hey Freddie, play us a tune. And without missing a beat, her father would cup his hands around his mouth and start tapping his foot. To Lopper, each note was magic. When her father was at work, she'd sneak into her parents' bedroom and find his instruments, plucking his Hawaiian slide guitar and laying underneath his xylophone, imagining what it might sound like from the inside. She'd dance around the house to her mother's Broadway records, like My Fair Lady, The King and I, and Camelot, so much so that her mom enrolled her daughter in tap lessons. By preschool, Lopper decided to forego talking altogether and sing every word she had to say. Around the corner from their home in Brooklyn, a group of ladies gathered regularly to partake in what urbanist Jane Jacobs calls sidewalk ballet. Talking, laughing, and people watching from the theater-style seating of New York City stoops. So four and a half year old Lopper would wander over and sing for those ladies, putting on impromptu performances, then accepting payment in the form of applause and a quarter. She'd beam with pride as she flashed the shiny coin from her pocket. A tiny New Yorker with a big voice. But not long after her fifth birthday, Lopper's parents sat her down. There was something they needed to tell her. Before the first grade, Lopper's world full of joy and music came crashing down in an instant. Her parents were divorcing. Within two years, her father had moved away. Her mother remarried and relocated Lopper and her two siblings into a new apartment in Queens. But the man her mother remarried was nothing like her father. And it wasn't long before he became abusive in every sense of the word. Gone was the sound of the harmonica. Gone were the days she'd wander to the corner and sing for the neighbors. Now, seven-year-old Lopper locked herself in her bedroom for days on end. It was the only place she felt safe. On one side of her door was violence, anxiety, and trauma. On the inside, Lopper created a world for herself. When things were really bad, When the police were banging on their front door after yet another domestic disturbance, she'd hide away and write a poem, put it to music, and sing. Her imagination was her only escape. As Lopper entered her tween years and the Beatles entered America, her mother bought her new records. Meet the Beatles sounded nothing like Camelot. They were young and cool, and she developed a major crush on Paul McCartney. So she and her siblings would grab mops and brooms and become the Fab Three. Then, Lopper got her very own guitar. Like most teenagers of the era, Lopper hung posters of the Beatles up in her bedroom. She'd stare at them while she daydreamed, while she sang, strummed her guitar, while she painted or did her homework. It was underneath those very posters that Lopper composed her first song, called Sitting by the Wayside. She and her sister Ellen channeled John and Paul in their harmonies. Soon afterward, the sisters discovered the Supremes, Janis Joplin, Joni Mitchell, and the Four Tops. But as Lopper describes in her memoir, the anxiety of sharing a home with her abusive stepfather was starting to take a toll. Every day became a matter of survival. And while school should have been a respite, it wasn't. Lauper liked to dress differently, mostly in vintage clothes and antique accessories. Because of her unique look, it was difficult to make friends. She was labeled a geek, and her mother says some of her classmates even threw stones at her. To cope, Lopper says she, once again, turned into her imagination. She put on music, and if there was no record player nearby, she danced to the music in her head. Lopper's creativity led her to discover a local arts high school. She figured there, she might actually fit in amongst a group of peers all looking to stand out. She sat down with her school's guidance counselor to discuss the transfer. But he stopped her right there. He said, Sure, you could go to an art school, if you want to end up waiting tables. Undeterred, Lopper decided to apply to Manhattan's High School of Fashion Industries, a specialized art school that prepared students for careers in fashion, business, marketing, and design. With Lopper's increased interest in style, it seemed like a good fit. She passed the entrance exam, and soon this Queens girl was off to Manhattan. Lopper loved the train ride into the city. She felt cultured and independent. She says Manhattan was nothing like Queens. The energy was different, the people were different, sophisticated. Fashion school was not as easy as its name might suggest. Sewing class was really hard, so was English and math. She enjoyed her painting class a lot, but on the whole, she was struggling. Lopper said she became increasingly afraid of failing, of ending up exactly like her guidance counselor had predicted. Then she got her report card. Lopper let her anxiety get the best of her, and she failed every single class her first semester at fashion school. Her teachers could tell she was intelligent, but there was something preventing her from achieving the grades they knew she was capable of achieving. So before they, quote, flunked her, they tried one last thing. Lopper's school placed her into the non-achieving genius class. Basically, a separate class for gifted students who didn't thrive in the typical learning environment. But it didn't work. In the end, she says all she learned was that she was not a non-achieving genius, but simply a non-achiever. Lopper transferred to a public high school back in Queens. Her older sister was a senior there, which was a relief because it gave her someone to sit with at lunch. But soon her sister graduated and moved out. She got a basement apartment with a friend in Valley Stream, a Long Island village just east of Queens, leaving Lopper and her younger brother behind in the house. One day, Lopper met a neighborhood girl named Susan. They quickly realized they had a lot in common. They both had older sisters the same age. They both played guitar. Susan was interested in something called the women's movement, a brand new concept to Lopper, and one she identified with immediately. The pair decided to start a folk duo called Spring Harvest. They performed at local cafes, for free, of course. It was a welcome distraction from her home life. Suddenly, Lopper felt different. Like for the first time, there was something she was good at. Something to attach her name to. Purpose. Susan was a real go-getter. So she contacted a local music manager to arrange a meeting. But he would reject Spring Harvest. He said in order to work, they'd need to have boys in the band. By the time Lopper turned 17, she says graduation kept feeling more and more unattainable. She was looking ahead at the probability of repeating the 12th grade, and the idea of extra time in a place she felt like such an outsider started to feel like a double term in misery. So Lopper dropped out of high school. Unfortunately, without school, she was forced to spend even more time at home, in her bedroom, with the door locked. She says the situation with her stepfather had become impossible. Her mother was working 14-hour days as a waitress. Her sister was gone. She and her brother had no protector. One day, she caught her stepfather watching her through a crack in the door, and she realized even the lock didn't keep her safe anymore. She'd seen enough. She had to go. It was not an easy decision. Lopper says she felt tremendous guilt for leaving her baby brother behind. But in truth, he was part of the reason she'd stayed as long as she had. Lopper called her older sister and told her what had happened. Her sister told her exactly what to do. She said go to the nearest Long Island Railroad Station and get the next ticket to Valley Stream. Lopper could stay with her and her roommate in their basement apartment. So Lopper packed a bag with the essentials, a toothbrush, a change of underwear, an apple, and a copy of Yoko Ono's book, Grapefruit. She made steak and a baked potato for her little brother and tucked it into the oven for him when he got home. She hopped the train and watched as Queens, her stepfather, and her childhood disappeared behind her. When 17-year-old Lopper arrived in Valley Stream, her sister got her a job as a gal Friday at the publishing house Simon & Schuster. Suddenly, she had rent to pay, so Lopper gladly accepted. Though, it didn't take long before she realized she was less a gal Friday and more a gal Friday the 13th. She wasn't very efficient. Also, she didn't own any professional attire. When they brought in an electric typewriter, Lopper would only type 19 words per minute. She says in her memoir, it wasn't long before they let her go, letting her know she was the worst receptionist they'd ever had. No job meant no money, and no money meant no food. Lopper says there were many nights she went without dinner, forced to distract her mind from her own hunger pains. Lopper, her sister, and their roommate would put on the latest hit record and dance around their cramped, dark apartment. Clapton's Layla and Harrison's All Things Must Pass. Lopper says when she hit the high notes, something special happened. A distinct vibration shot through her body, and the hunger pains disappeared. One night, Elvin Bishop was opening up for Johnny Winter and Rick Derringer at the Fillmore in the East Village, and Lopper decided to go watch them play. The people in line outside the club were almost oppressively cool. Tube tops, platform shoes, and bangle earrings. She'd never seen anything like it, not in Queens. Queens was the borough New York Times columnist Barbara Brotman once called the humiliating asterisk that comes after, I'm from New York. These people were bona fide New Yorkers, where high-fashion clubwear was currency. Lopper managed to sneak backstage, at one point being mistaken for a backup singer. High praise. As she watched the concert from the wings, she felt her folk roots melt away. Winter and Derringer were rockers, and she thought, I can do that. Over the next few years, Lopper took on a series of odd jobs to support herself. She cleaned the Hare Krishna temple. It felt very George Harrison. Plus, they fed her. She stuffed mailers full of cosmetic samples. She was a salesperson at Bert's Shoes at the Roosevelt Field Mall. She led horses on and off a racetrack. And though it pained her to do exactly what her high school guidance counselor predicted she'd end up doing... She became a waitress at IHOP, but she was fired, time after time. By 1972, Lopper started busking in Greenwich Village. She could only really play two songs proficiently on the guitar, Joni Mitchell's Carrie and This Flight Tonight. She says mostly because she'd tuned her guitar to those songs, and once tuned, there was no going back. She wore a long green coat, a hat covered in stars, candy cane socks, and red clogs one size too big to accommodate for the socks. She felt fantastic, but more often than not, she was met with stares, comments, and laughter. Despite her limited repertoire, Lopper's panhandling earned her a couple dimes here, a couple quarters there. Then one day, a man dropped two whole dollars into her guitar case and said, This is for your first album. Remember me then. She liked the sound of that, so she grabbed a newspaper and started flipping through the wand ads for singers. Lopper came across an audition to sing back up for a local disco cover band. So she made her way to the listed address and stood in front of the group's male members, prepared to sing Gladys Knight and the Pips' I've Got to Use My Imagination. But after she took a breath, ready to belt out one of her favorite songs, something strange happened. The notes came out a couple octaves higher than she meant them to. Out of nowhere, this overwhelming sound vibrated through Lopper's windpipes. Everyone was in shock, including Lopper. The little 5'3 woman standing before them was a powerhouse. She'd soon learn she had a four-octave range, a rare and impressive gift. She was hired on the spot. The band played Long Island dive bars, and if ever there was a lull, the lead singer would signal Cindy to the front of the stage to summon that electrifying voice and jolt the audience back into consciousness. She'd plant her six inch heels firmly into the beer stained platform and belt out Lady Marmalade or Tell Me Something Good. After one such show, a man from the audience approached the band. He was a manager. He told them he was interested in their sound but only if they made the crazy-haired girl with the rock-and-roll voice their lead singer. The existing lead begrudgingly stepped aside, but it wouldn't be long before resentment festered at the back of the stage. The band took a vote, and Lopper, the only part of their sound gaining any attention, was fired. Hold that thought. We'll be right back. Through her time with the disco cover band, Lopper generated buzz on the underground circuit. So when word spread that she was available, she started getting offers to form new bands. So she, a guitar player she knew, a bass player, and a drummer got together and formed a new group they'd call Flyer. This one was a little less Janis Joplin and a little more Rod Stewart. Lopper's time with Flyer taught her a lot about performing. For instance, she learned to save her biggest, highest notes for the climax of the song rather than maintaining that intensity start to finish, which would damage her vocal cords. She also learned to tune out negativity. Audience members would come up to her constantly and tell her they didn't like her voice or they didn't like her choppy haircut or her colorful clothes. She says, over time, she just stopped listening. She learned that in order to maintain her raspy, rock-and-roll sound night after night without risking permanent damage to her vocal cords, she needed PA equipment. That way the speakers could do a lot of the projecting for her. Plus, she could hear herself more clearly through the monitor. Unfortunately, that type of equipment was expensive, and split four ways the pennies flyer was earning at nightclubs didn't leave much left over. So Lopper started go-go dancing on nights off for extra cash. One night after her shift, the go-go club owner pulled her aside. He told her she was such a talented dancer. So talented, in fact, that he thought he'd give her some sage advice. He said, give up singing. Become a dancer instead. Quit trying to be something you're not. After a gig one night, Lopper was introduced to a man named John Turi. Turi was a songwriter slash keyboardist. They hit it off instantly and decided to write a song together. In no time, Lopper quit her band, and she and Turi would start a new group together called Blue Angel. Blue Angel became a revolving door of guitar players and genres before settling on rockabilly. She says they put out bad demos that put them into debt and sent those demos around to record labels, but they never got so much as a rejection letter. Years passed. Then one night they were playing a gig on the Upper West Side when a man approached them. He'd heard their bad demo and he reiterated it was bad. But he liked Lopper's vocals. Turns out he was the manager for the Allman Brothers. Contracts were signed, and before they knew it, their new manager had set up a showcase for Blue Angel and invited all of the music industry to come hear them play. In rapid succession, Blue Angel had a manager, a showcase, and the interest of a prominent record label on the table. Polydor, a major label in the 80s, was looking for a new wave group to add to their roster, and they offered Blue Angel a record deal. It was all happening, fast. Soon their picture appeared in Billboard magazine. They massaged the list of songs from their original demo, and before they knew it, they had studio time, a cover art photo shoot, and a launch plan in the calendar. Lopper says it was common at the time to launch new acts in Europe before America, so they kicked off a release tour for their eponymous album in Germany. Lopper packed some of her best outfits. But one critic wrote, I can't even hear the lead singer because of her clothes. Lopper was surprised. She always thought Plaid and Leopard looked really good together. And the reviews back in the U.S. weren't so flattering either. Unbeknownst to Lopper and the band, while they were busy touring Europe, it was decided back in America that rockabilly was retro and passé. The album flopped, selling 12,000 records total. At its peak, it reached number 37 in the Netherlands. No sales meant no actual income for the band, and they began to starve. Friends of Lopper's would give her food, But she was losing weight so the record company sat her down they said look you've got to lose the band they knew she was the star her voice was the sole money maker of the group they told her they could make her the next barbara streisand you'd think this would be music to a struggling singer's ears but two thoughts rushed through her mind one she didn't feel right about abandoning the group she was loyal and two, she didn't sing ballads. She was nothing like Babs. She wanted to be the first Cindy Lopper. But they didn't listen. So she looked the head of Polydor dead in the eyes and said, Why don't you make somebody else into the next Streisand? The executives had to pick their jaws up off the floor. Lopper says subsequent meetings at the record company left a sour taste in her mouth. If they weren't trying to change her sound, she was being presented with an elaborate pie chart detailing all the ways in which the record company would take her money, if she ever made any. The tiniest slice of the pie was inevitably her share. It didn't feel right, and she stopped trusting her manager. She was still with the band, but executives kept urging her to, quote, stop dragging that little red wagon behind her. This brazen talk of Lopper's potential as a solo act eventually ate away at the band's morale. It wasn't long before they split up. But after that came a messy legal separation from their manager, forcing Lopper into bankruptcy. In December of 1981, Lopper found herself at a Christmas party lots of underground musician-types drinking beer, and wearing what she says was the uniform of the early 80s. Tight black pants. Then in walked a guy wearing yellow corduroy bell-bottoms, with white sneakers and a beat-up sweater. He was a bit of a mess. But as the night went on, he sat down beside Lopper and struck up a conversation. Turns out his sense of humor was as wacko as his sense of style. He was a character just like she was. His name was David Wolfe. Wolfe was also a fellow starving artist who had worked a million and one odd jobs, so the pair had plenty to commiserate over. She sang for him, and Wolfe said he couldn't understand how she wasn't a star. He told her about his dream job, to be a music manager. He said, I'm just starting out, but I'll manage you if you want. By the time the sun came up, the pair were boyfriend and girlfriend, and for the first time, Lopper had a manager she could trust. Lopper started playing solo gigs at clubs, and when she got reviews, they were actually really positive. In fact, she was even featured in an issue of Life magazine. The spread was called Girl Rockers. In the meantime, she got herself a job at a vintage clothing store called Screaming Mimi's, Aside from her dream job as a Grammy-winning artist, this was pretty much the next best thing. In the sea of leather jackets, Levi's jeans, faux pearl necklaces, and 40s Mary Janes, Lopper would piece together outfits for herself. It got to the point where almost her entire paycheck would go back into the store, like working for free. But it was heaven, and she started to define her look. Sorbet-colored hair... Tool skirts, and bathing suits as tops. To sum up, she was stylish, but broke. Often, she and Wolf skipping a day of eating altogether. His office was the bathroom of their studio apartment. He'd sit on the toilet and prop their telephone on the sink, calling venues and labels. Then one day, Wolf told Lopper he'd landed her a meeting. He said, quit your job. You're about to get a record deal. The meeting was with Lenny Pizzi, the head of Portrait Records, also known as the man who signed Boston in 1976. Lopper, Wolf, and Pizzi had dinner one snowy night in Connecticut. They played cards, they talked music, and Pizzi agreed to come see Lopper perform. Soon after, Lopper was performing at a club in Yonkers, and Wolf invited Pizzi to come watch. She wore a 50s sweater, a cocktail skirt, fishnets, and stiletto slingbacks. She rolled around on stage, belting every note. After the show, Lenny Pizzi gave his review. He wasn't a fan of rockabilly or whatever subgenre this was, but he liked her style. She was a performer. So Pizzi offered Lopper a record deal as a solo act. He introduced her to a producer who had been collecting great songs and waiting for the right female voice to bring them to life. Lopper was hesitant. She wanted to write her own songs. But Pizzi said, Sing first, then you can write. Lopper sat down with Pizzi's producer. The songs he'd collected were good, all from very talented, very different songwriters. But it was important to Lopper that, if she made an album of other people's songs, it wouldn't sound like a grab bag. It had to be cohesive. And the only way to do that would be to put her own sound, her own stamp, on each tune. Lopper says she was picky. She may have been inexperienced in the world of fancy record labels, but she spent 30 years learning herself. She said when an album is released, the producer's name is in fine print on the back. The artist's name is front and center, along with their picture. She'd have to wear this debut album for the rest of her life. It had better be perfect. He had one song that was interesting. It was Fast, written a few years earlier. It was called Girls Just Want to Have Fun, but it told a story from a man's perspective. As it was written, fun, not so loosely translated to sex. And Lopper said she'd have to have a lobotomy before she ever sang it that way. So she did a little maneuvering and changed around the tempo, shifted the tone. Suddenly, from a woman's perspective, in a woman's key, the song transformed before her eyes into a feminist anthem. Lopper said fun to her meant the same damn experience any man could have. Next, Lopper and her producer worked on a song called Money Changes Everything, then a cover of a Prince song called When You Were Mine. Okay, so she sang. Now they promised she could write. Together with a writer from the record label, Lopper co-wrote a song called She Bop, she says it was sort of the female version of the Stones' Get Off My Cloud. The label liked it. They agreed to include the song on side two of the album. But Lopper wanted to write one more. The label didn't think it necessary. The budget was nearly maxed out, and they had enough material for a full album already. But Lopper insisted. She started thinking about her own life. There was an old clock in the apartment she shared with Wolf that ticked so loudly she'd have to put it into the shower and close the bathroom door just to get some sleep. So she started jotting down lines. Lying in bed, I hear the clock tick and think of you. She needed a working title, so she flipped to a random page in the TV guide. There was a movie playing at seven o'clock called Time After Time. Good enough for now, it'd change. But as she kept writing, the words time after time seemed to embed themselves irreversibly into the song. She tried taking them out, treating them as a placeholder lyric, but she couldn't. She sang the song for the record label, and they loved it. Lopper said they really should have just let her write all along. Within two months, they had an entire album recorded. They'd call it... She's So Unusual. In October of 1983, She's So Unusual was released, with Girls Just Want to Have Fun as the first single. The record company, Lopper's producer, her manager, and Lopper herself stood solidly behind that choice. Earlier that very year, the Equal Rights Amendment fell short of the votes necessary to be added to the U.S. Constitution. Girls was an anthem the world needed to hear, and with a big release plan, hopes were sky high. But MTV barely played the song. And two weeks after its release, only seven radio stations across the whole of America had played it. It wasn't looking good. Then, a powerful radio programmer sent Lopper a letter. It said the record would never go mainstream because Lopper sang too high. Panic started to set in. Then Wolf had a strange idea. He said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go to wrestling shows. Pardon? Pardon? Wolf said, We'll cross promote. This was not a common term in 1983. He went on, There were three wrestling shows every weekend Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And those three shows drew big numbers. As a diehard wrestling fan, he knew if they could somehow incorporate her songs into those shows, the exposure would be huge. Lopper said, Okay and suddenly the singer was slammed into the wacky world of WWE. Portrait Records wanted to make a music video of their lead single, Girls Just Wanna Have Fun. So Wolf invited wrestling legend turned manager, Captain Lou Albano, to appear in the video. He'd play Lopper's bearded, disapproving father. You know, the one who asks what she's gonna do with her life. Captain Lou, was totally on board. Next, Wolf arranged for the video to play between WWE matches. The deal was that in return, Lopper would promote WWE in any press appearances for the album. And that she did. Portrait landed Lopper an interview on Late Night with David Letterman. Letterman's brand-new series and his first foray into Late Night, airing just after Johnny Carson on NBC. She wore a tulle headband, lace gloves, and touted her quirky friendship with the captain, calling him the maker of champions. The unlikely crossover continued with on-air WWE appearances and faux fights featuring Lopper, Captain Lou, and even Hulk Hogan. As Bleacher Report put it, Among all the muscles, sideshow characters, and cartoonish strongmen, Lopper fit right in. She was as boisterous and colorful, fun to watch, and a touch ridiculous, just like the world of the squared circle. And in all that offbeat craziness, something remarkable happened. In June of 1984, Time After Time went to number one on the singles charts, where it stayed for three straight weeks. Then, three more songs from She's So Unusual made it to the top five, including Girls Just Wanna Have Fun and Bop, setting the record for most hits by a female debut artist. Ms. Magazine named Lopper one of their Women of the Year. And in May of 1984, Cindy Lauper was on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine. Lauper won the MTV Video Award for Best Female Video for Girls. She was nominated for seven Grammy Awards, including Record of the Year and Song of the Year. And she won Best New Artist. She's So Unusual sold one million copies, making it certified platinum, Then that number doubled, then tripled, and soon it reached the inconceivable milestone of 6 million copies sold, making it certified six times platinum, charting on the album Top 40 list for 65 weeks. And suddenly, little girls everywhere started wearing tulle skirts, bangles, and bathing suits for tops. She's So Unusual Three words hurled at Lopper her entire life. But the woman told her hair was too colorful, her prints too clashing, her songs too high-pitched, who struggled to make friends, told she'd never amount to anything, who was fired from every job and every band with an inexplicable connection to the WWE, would sell 16 million copies of her first album alone, making Cindy Lopper one of the best-selling female debut artists of all time.
0: It takes such courage to celebrate your uniqueness when nobody's buying it. When they say your hair is too weird, your clothes are too bizarre, or your vibe is too strange. It takes a particular kind of bravery to walk your own walk when people are throwing stones at you, both figuratively and literally. Those stones can chip away at your beautiful edges. And if you let it, they can smooth you out so that you fit perfectly back into the herd. But Cindy Lauper learned to tune out the negativity and the critics, which is never easy to do. But on her darkest days, Lauper wore her most colorful clothes. She was also open to the universe throwing her an unexpected detour. Like when her partner suggested they embrace the world of professional wrestling. Then before she knew it, the massive WWE audience embraced her. Sometimes, a detour turns out to be a shortcut. By staying true to herself, Cyndi Lauper proved all the naysayers wrong. She has sold millions of records. She won Grammys. She is on VH1's list of the 100 greatest women of rock and roll. Her play Kinky Boots ran for six impressive years making it one of the longest-running plays in Broadway history, grossing close to $300 million. And she has given back in huge ways, including co-founding the True Colors United organization that helps homeless LGBTQ youth, the ones society throws stones at, find homes and dignity and respect. Cindy Lauper once said, The strange lesson to learn in life is that your differences, the uncomfortable things that make you feel like you don't fit in, are really your gifts. Because only the new and different people are the ones who succeed. The secret is to let your true colors shine through. Never, ever give up.
1: Cynthia and Stephanie Lopper. Total album sold, 50 million. Grammy Awards, 2. YouTube Views, Girls Just Want to Have Fun, 1 billion. Inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, 2015. Inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame, 2019.
2: The Rejection Podcast is an apostrophe podcast production and is recorded in our Airstream mobile recording studio. This series is hosted and written by me, Sydney O'Reilly. Research, Allison Pinches. Director, Callie O'Reilly. We regret to inform you, our engineer is Jeff Devine. Producer, Debbie O'Reilly. Theme music by Ian Lefevre and Ari Posner. The major source for this episode is Cindy Lauper, a memoir by Cindy Lauper with Jancy Dunn. Other major sources are listed in the show notes on our website, apostrophepodcasts.ca slash rejection. Follow us on social at apostrophepod. If you enjoyed this episode, you might also like Rejecting Lady Gaga from Season 1. Rate and review this podcast wherever you like to listen. And while you're there, let us know of any rejection stories you'd like to hear. This series is executive produced by Terry O'Reilly, not the hockey player. See you next time.